Bibles, please turn in them to Malachi chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 16 as we continue to to plod forward in this this last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. The words are also printed there on pages 5 and 6 in your bulletin. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithful. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for texts like this that remind us that we are called to be faithful in all our relationships, but most primarily in the covenant of marriage. So God, would you help us to be faithful as you are faithful to us. And may we see even in, in, in this text how your covenant with us is reflected in the covenant of marriage. Would you be glorified in my preaching and in our listening, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Seeing as our text focuses rather heavily on marriage, I, I was curious earlier this week when I was stumbling around on the internet and a blog entitled, It's Chemistry, Practical Advice for Protecting Your Marriage from Affair, popped up on my screen. Now, be at ease. This was a Christian blog. It was not some pop culture site that I was, I was amusing on. Um, but however, it, it was one that I hadn't visited before. I'd never been there, so who knows what they were going to tell me. And doing a little research, though, I did find, to, to my delight, that there were some writers on there that I know and I trust, so, so I read along. And in all honesty, I don't remember anything about the actual purpose, practical advice to, to protect your marriage from affair. So sorry to those who heard that title and were waiting for those 45 seconds eagerly and patiently. But what did stand out, though, was as the author concluded the, the article, she wrote this, As much as is honorable in the sight of God, your marriage is worth working on, cherishing, fighting for, building, and strengthening as long as you are living. And then she says this, your marriage matters to God, your children, your extended family, your church, and society as a whole. And it's that last sentence that really jumped off the screen at me as I was preparing. And it it almost sounds a little bit audacious, if not even scandalous. Does marriage, mine, yours, really matter to that degree? What about for singles? Whether those who are yet unmarried or those who are not called to marriage? Does marriage still hold such significance that we can say it matters 
to God, children, church, society as whole? Should we be so bold as to make such a statement? And without question, the answer is yes, we should. We can be so bold because I think this is precisely what the Lord reveals to us in the prophet Malachi here in chapters 2, in verses 10 through 6. The Lord is now turning his attention away from the priests and their failures to the people and theirs. Last week, we saw how it was the priests' failures to guard the honor of the Lord in both their worship and their word. And here we see it is the people who are being exposed for their failure to guard the covenant of marriage, which ultimately reflected fidelity, infidelity of true religion. By being unfaithful to their spouse, the people were being unfaithful to their God. We see that the covenant of marriage demands faithfulness because the covenant of marriage reflects God and his covenant with us. Or to put it in terms of the article, marriage matters. It matters when it is good and godly and faithful, and it matters even when it is faithless and broken. It matters to all of us here, whether married or unmarried, young or old. So all of us need to be diligent to care for it as the picture of God's covenant grace with us. And so right from the beginning, the text makes it abundantly clear that Israel has not been faithful. The covenant of marriage has not been kept by the people. The Lord declares this in verse 11 where he very simply and matter-of-factly says, Judah has been faithless. And as we continue in this text, we see that there's kind of three areas where their covenant infidelity rears its ugly head. And we kind of move in a narrowing direction. Malachi starts at the very beginning with a very broad look at all of Israel and their relationships with one another. And then he slowly moves step by step with his target on marriage and the covenant of it. And so we're going to look at, we're going to follow this progression. We're going to see these three areas of infidelity are, first, family bonds are fractured. Then intentions for marriage are fallen. And finally, covenant wives are forsaken. That's family bonds are fractured. Intentions for marriage are fallen. And covenant wives are forsaken. And by highlighting these, Malachi is calling for renewed faithfulness for all of Israel. Not just the husbands, not just the wives, but all Israel is called to faithfulness. For a true guarding of the covenant of marriage. Because there is much at stake for the individuals, for the community. And pointing back to last week, for even the honor of the Lord. So first and shortest, we see that family bonds are fractured. And surprisingly, this failure is actually brought up by the people in verse 10. They look around at the everyday life in, in Israel, and what do they see? Why are we faithless to one another? This word faithless appears in every verse in this text, except for verses 12 and 13. So it, it's critical as we seek to understand what Malachi is, is teaching. And while faithless is a good and right translation, it can also mean to deal treacherously kind of gives it a darker spin. There is treacherous behavior. There is betrayal among the people of Israel. There's deception. There's no loyalty. We're not given specific examples. We can guess there's probably things like extortion, oppression, even a general lack of concern and care for the greatest to the least of those in Israel. 
We know this because Israel had been guilty of these things in the past. Read the prophets who are constantly calling Israel's failure to live up to the covenant they have with one another. And we know such things would continue to plague them in the ministries of both Ezra and Nehemiah, who were contemporaries of Malachi. But whatever the case may be, we see that relational problems, family bonds are fractured, and these problems are abounding in Israel. And it shouldn't be this way. This is why Israel confesses, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? To borrow the words of Kevin Brenneman from my ordination service way back when, Israel knows who they are and whose they are. They know that God is their father and their creator. They know this because Moses joined these two realities in his song before his death. In Deuteronomy 32, 6, where he says, Is not he, the Lord, your father, who created you, who made you and established you? See, unlike the rest of mankind, who can only claim God as their creator, Israel stood in a unique position before the Lord. He created them individually, yes, male and female, as his image bearers. But he also adopted them as a nation, as his son. He established them as a nation for his purposes and for his glory. And then he entered into a covenant with them, not with any other nation, but with them specifically. So therefore, all the people in Israel are united together, united to one another under their creator and their father. Their bonds were certainly familiar, familial as descendants of Abraham, but they're also spiritual as the covenant community in covenant with one another and God. So therefore, unity, cooperation, accountability were expected. The people were supposed to be working together to uphold and reflect the covenant faithfulness in their relationships with each other. There shouldn't have been extortion. There shouldn't have been oppression. There should have been love for neighbor and genuine concern and compassion. Israel is, if you will, a dysfunctional family when we come to this point in Malachi. Now, unfortunately, in our day, between social media and reality TV, dysfunctional families are kind of looked at as, as something amusing or a, we even have an appreciation for them. We like to laugh at them. And the ratings show that people actually want more dysfunction. They want arguments, division, chaos, and drama. And so we can read this dysfunction in Israel and just kind of move alongside. It's not a big deal. But for those who've grown up in any sense of dysfunction or know dysfunction in families well, you can appreciate what the people of Israel are saying here. They're crying out, why are we unfaithless? What is going on? They recognize they shouldn't be this way. There should be loving service to God and obedient service and love for one another. And these fractured bonds that we see and that are confessed in Israel invites us to consider where are we faithless amongst one another? Who is the brother or the sister with whom care and love from you is lacking? Who is that fellow member of Christ's body with whom we may not be always honest or we're, we're disloyal? Maybe even we're treacherous. The truth of the matter is such fractures between a couple here or a handful there does affect the entire community. Life is not lived in a vacuum. It bears fruits in lives. It bears fruit in our corporate life. 
and it reveals something about our covenant faithfulness or unfaithfulness to God. It points to our own profaning of the covenant of our fathers. So may we repent when we see such faithfulness within our body. May we pursue relationships with one another in bonds of unity and peace and cooperation that flow from knowing, to borrow Kevin's words again, who we are and whose we are. But narrowing one step further, though, Malachi reveals, besides family bonds being fractured, the intentions for marriage itself are fallen. We see this in verses 11 and 12. The Lord, if you will, is kind of peeling back Israel as, as an onion, if you will, layer by layer to expose the depths of their unfaithfulness. Yes, their dealings that we just went through with one another are wicked, but they're far from the end of it. There's more, and the more gets worse. So bad, in fact, that we see the word abomination get thrown in. Anytime that word comes into scripture, it probably should make us pause. It's a big word. Israel is doing something that should not be done. Something specifically they've been told, do not do. And we see the act revealed in the latter half of verse 11. Where the Lord says, Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. The emphasis here is not simply on foreign. Because Israel's history is filled with foreign women and men who become part of the covenant community. And as we know, two of them show up in the genealogy of Jesus between Rahab from Jericho and Ruth the Moabite. But these two women in particular and the stories of others who joined the community was that they put all their eggs in the basket of God and his people. We see in faith that Rahab rejected her people, rejected Jericho for the refuge of the Lord and his people. And we also see in faith, Ruth abandoned her people, even her gods, as she confessed, claiming the gods and the people of her mother-in-law, Naomi. So despite being outsiders, these two, in word and deed, revealed themselves to no longer be, as Malachi says, the daughter of the foreign god. Because that's the emphasis that Malachi is bringing. These, these men of Israel were willingly and joyfully pursuing and entering into marriage with pagan, idolatrous women. These women worshipped idols. They went to the feasts. They knew nothing of the Lord and his covenant. They wanted nothing of the Lord and his covenant. They were the daughters of foreign gods. As one rabbi on this text says... By marrying them, the men were making themselves son-in-laws to idols. Just picture that with you, if you will. This is oil and water trying to mix, trying to go together, trying to fit where they just don't fit. But more striking than that picture is, is the word that the Lord specifically gave his people when it comes to these types of marriages. We see it in places like Exodus 34, but also in Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4, where the Lord says, you shall not intermarry with them, that is the idolatrous nations, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. And here lies the issue with such marriages. 
the inevitable descent into apostasy. It's unavoidable. The Lord makes it clear when he gave them that law in Deuteronomy 7. It will turn your sons away from me. And you're already probably thinking of where I'm about to go for proof. We need not look anywhere beyond 1 Kings 11 and Solomon. It's a sad story of his abomination. Where we read, now Solomon loved many foreign women. Solomon clung to these in love. And when Solomon was old, his wife turned his away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Solomon corrupted himself and Israel with pagan marriages. His wives led him astray, which ultimately bore awful fruit in Israel, the kingdom being split. So if Solomon, the wisest man, and Israel's second greatest king, was undone by pagan wives, why should these Israelite men think differently? I'll offer a guess of hedonism and pride. Hedonism said the pleasure is too good to outweigh whatever the consequences would be. Maybe these foreign women were just beautiful. Maybe they were better than the Israelite women. Their pursuit of pleasure said, bring on the consequences, it doesn't matter. Pride, on the other hand, said, I'm strong enough that I can do this and remain faithful. Or, it's really not an issue at all. We can do it without guessing, thinking twice. But sadly, the consequences are dire. Strength is false. And as we've read in Deuteronomy 7, it is a big deal. These actions profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. And this term sanctuary can literally mean just generally a holy thing. It is not specific to only mean sanctuary. In using this term, Malachi could as much be referring to the law or the men themselves. I think the ESV does well to keep it a little bit vague. But whatever the precise thing that is being profaned, whether the law, the sanctuary, the men, it is bad. Because it's, if it's the sanctuary, we just walk through the Lord's words in Malachi 1 about what happens when you profane the sanctuary, what it says about God. And if it's the men, which I think it is just on the account of that small phrase, which he loves, they're polluting themselves by their actions. And if it's the offerings, they're polluting those as well. So either way, we see that marrying or seeking to marry outside the covenant community pollutes everything. And worse still, in verse 12, we see that it warrants the covenant curse. And Malachi even asks for it. He says, may the Lord cut off, this is a request, may the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob, any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. As I mentioned, the consequences are, are dire. Choosing the daughters of foreign gods is rejecting the only faithful and true God. And before we're tempted to think, yeah, but that was back then, we have the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16, where he, just as bluntly, says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What agreement has the temple of God and idols? We see here the stakes remain the same today. Entering into the covenant of marriage with unbelievers is just as faithless and just as profaning. 
It is a failure to distinguish between the one true God and the false idols. Between covenant faithfulness and idolatry. It's actually seeking to unite them when they cannot be united. So for singles then, particularly younger singles with a hope for marriage, may I plead with you, do not pursue a spouse who does not belong to Christ. It doesn't matter how nice they are. It does not matter if they're successful and their success deems well for your success. It doesn't matter if the two of you just fit so well together. And it also doesn't matter how strong your desire may be to see them come to Christ or how good your evangelism is. Scripture here and in 2 Corinthians 6 paints a clear picture. It is sin. It is infidelity to the God who has called you to himself and to be faithful to himself. Your parents and your friends who emphasize this, they're not simply being old-fashioned or mean. They're being obedient. They're being faithful. And to those of us who are married or to those who are unmarried and for whatever reason marriage is not for you, whether by calling or by choice, we must also be challenged, particularly about hedonism and pride. They can be just as dangerous for those in marriage or with the gift of, of singleness. Because these can easily lead us towards infidelity to the covenant of our marriage. To the covenant with our God in Christ. Or both. So we need to be careful of our intentions, both in marriage and out of marriage. Are always in pursuit of faithfulness and loyalty. May they always be pure and honoring to God who has made a covenant with us to be his people. But then finally, we see that Malachi moves now in verse 13 to the center of the faithless bullseye, if you will. And he sees that covenant wives are being forsaken. In the ultimate act of covenant betrayal, the men of Israel were unjustly divorcing, sending away their wives. Some did so because of the foreign wives we saw in verse 11. They took a younger wife move out with the older one. Others, for no apparent, apparent reason, maybe just because of age, tossed them aside. But whatever the case may be, these men had broken covenant. They were guilty and they had no excuse for sending their wives away. And so Malachi once again calls them faithless, treacherous, in verses 14, 15, and 16. This is the epitome of the, the unfaithfulness, of the infidelity that he's drawing at from the very beginning of this text. Why were they brutal and faithless with one another? Because they were brutal and faithless, faithless with their wives. If they're willing to betray their companion, their wife by covenant, why would they not be willing to betray anyone else? And then following in the footsteps of their leaders, we see the men are completely oblivious to their wrongdoing. Just like the priests who had the audacity to challenge how they have defiled the altar, the men have the audacity to come and present their offerings and then weep, cover the altar with tears when the Lord says, I'm not taking it. I reject it. 
Because the truth is that the shallow tears that they were pouring out and covering over the altars, they should have been saved for their wives, who they were covering with shame and dishonor. And for the disgrace that they brought to the covenant of the Lord that he had made with them and the covenant of marriage that he had made between a man and a woman. But we see, though, that the real devastation of their actions is not simply in rejected offerings. Because in verses 14 through 16, Malachi provides some of Scripture's strongest words when it comes to upholding marriage and condemning divorce. And before we dive in, I do want to stress, though, that Scripture does teach there are grounds, biblical grounds for divorce, namely infidelity and abandonment. And so when Malachi teaches here, it does not in any way contradict such grounds. His aim here is specifically at unjust or no-fault divorce that is running rampant in Israel. But still, the language remains the same. Whether grounds are biblical or not, divorce is a covenant broken. It is a tearing apart of what God has at one point made one. And so God hates it still. But as we read these verses, I want to briefly just draw out three things that Malachi declares about marriage. And the first thing we see is that God plays a key role in marriage. Notice to what he says, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Yes, we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. But no, we don't believe that marriage is only a covenant between one man and one woman. Because it's a covenant between one man and one woman under, before God himself. He covenants with the couple together. So it's lifelong. They make a covenant before the Lord with one another. And as such, a man and woman are then accountable to him. As much as husbands and wives must answer to each other, they must also answer to the Lord who entered into covenant with them. Matthew Henry on this text writes, There is an oath of God between you, man and woman, which is not to be trifled with, is not to be played fast and loose with. And Israel played fast and loose. We can also play fast and loose. And God, as the witness to our covenant, has the right to rebuke, to come and say, Foul, unfaithful. His failure to uphold the covenant between man and wife is a failure to uphold the covenant with the Lord. And so here is where we start to see that that opening quote I started with, how it does align with the teaching of Scripture. Faithfulness in marriage and spiritual well-being are linked together. And Peter highlights this too. For after he gives his instruction on husbands and wives, he tells husbands to honor their wives so that your prayers may not be hindered linking how husbands treat their wives with how their prayers are heard. We honor the Lord when we honor the vows we make with anyone, but especially the covenant vows with our spouses, where God has borne witness. But second, we see that God has intentions for marriage. We've seen the Israelites' intentions, but now we see God's intentions. He says in verse 15, Did he not make them one with a portion of of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. 
Malachi says that God in marriage makes husbands and wives one. We know this. We confess this. It's what was declared all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24, verse 24, when God brought Adam and Eve together. The verse that is read at every wedding, or should be read at every wedding. A husband, uh, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus confirmed these words in the words that Bruce read earlier from Mark chapter 10. Marriage brings two people together in a one flesh relationship and divorce tears apart what once was a unified whole. And this oneness that is supposed to be had between man and woman is, there's a goal. It's covenant children, godly offspring. Obviously, this statement is not all-encompassing about the benefits of marriage. Verse 14 says that your wife is a companion, a close friend. Someone who shares interests with, deep interests. And that idea of companionship is actually the same word where Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. So yes, marriage is for companionship, for joy, for pleasure, for love. The list goes on. God's intentions for marriage are many. But Malachi highlights bearing children. Children who belong to and seek to obey the Lord. This is why when, when children run astray, it is so heartbreaking. Because marriage is designed to lead, produce godly offspring. Because the marriage is the place, the primary place, where godly offspring are produced and discipled. In speaking about marriage, the theologian John Murray writes this, The marital institution is sanctified by the forces of redemptive grace to such an extent that it is made one of, not the only, main channels for accomplishment of God's saving purpose in the world. It is in the bosom of the Christian family that the nurture with the, which the Lord himself provides is administered. Believing parents are simply the instruments of the nurture which the Lord exercises. Tim held this out before us last week in the baptism of Jackson. He said it, no, God is not limited to the family to, to bring about salvation, but it is one of his primary means that he does. One of the ways he saves is through the faithfulness of believing husbands and wives, having children, and raising them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And so we see that both rampant divorce and foreign marriages distorts God's intentions of marriage. It corrupts what he has defined as good and true. And our day has seen similar corruptions of God's intentions. And it's easy to point outside the, the church and the culture and see them, but it's also guilty inside the church. Marriage today is seen more as contract than covenant, easily broken at the first sign of struggle. Or with my generation where studies are showing, it's as void of any desire to have kids whatsoever, to produce godly offspring. Because kids are too expensive. They're too demanding. They require more sacrifice than I'm willing to get. I mean, I'm willing to make. But we see God's intentions in marriage are oneness and godly offspring. And so faithfulness to God in our marriages, in our pursuit of marriages, in our desire for marriage means aligning ourselves with his intentions. But thirdly, and maybe most strongly, we see God hates divorce. 
You see this in verse 16. Now, if you do have your ESV Bibles open, you will notice in the footnotes that footnotes 2 through 7, that's a lot of footnotes on one page, by the way, they all deal with verses 15 and 16. These two verses are both the most difficult verses in this book, and verse 16 is considered to be one of the most difficult verses in all of the Old Testament scripture. However, don't let this scare you or leave some of you feeling uneasy, because while the particulars, and that's really what they're, they're grappling with here, may be hard to navigate, the point remains abundantly clear. Historically, if you have like the NIV or some of the older translations, this passage has been translated with the familiar, I hate divorce, with the Lord being the subject. Literally, the text can be read, for he hates to send divorce. And so the ESV translation reflects more of that literal than some of the other ones, where it says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence. While there is no exact consistency or consensus on what the hate refers to, the meaning remains the same. God hates divorce, and it's because later on he equates divorce with violence. He says divorce is like a stain on a garment. Everyone knows it's there. Everyone can see it. An unjust divorce in particular screams violence has been done. It proclaims a lack of love for God. It proclaims a lack of love and compassion for a spouse. It damages character. It brings shame. It brings dishonor. It threatens. It destroys the family and threatens to destroy even the covenant community. And some of you sadly know this all too well. Because going back to verses, verse 15, it violates that created order of one man and one woman in one flesh for life. And so it's for all these reasons we can and should hear God saying, I hate divorce. It undoes what I have brought together. And so for this reason then, Malachi repeats the same call twice in verses 15 and 16. He says, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. And so here's the application. Guard and be faithful. And this faithfulness in guarding is more than just physical. Our hearts and our minds matter just as much as our bodies. And so again, to the unmarried, be faithful in all your relationships, whatever they may be. Honor the vows that you make in those. Love and serve those you are in relationship with well. And then guard yourselves and the covenant of marriage, even if you never marry. Hold marriage in honor. Or do not defile the marriage bed, as Hebrews 13.4 says. So in your singleness, however long it lasts, pursue holiness. That's how you guard and not be faithless. Keep watch over your desires, your thoughts, your actions. And honor the Lord even by how you honor, the, honor marriage itself. And then to the married, it's the same. We also need to be faithful in all our relationships. 
keep the vows that we make, be true to our word, but especially when it comes to our spouse. Treat one another as companions, those who you share interests with. Cherish one another. Grow in your unity as husband and wife in one flesh and keep covenants. Esteem marriage. Do not fall into the temptation of our culture where complaining about marriage is kind of the cool thing to do. Where we can whine about what we don't get to do and it really demeans marriage. We also, though, need to keep watch over our desires, over our thoughts, over our actions. We need to pursue holiness in our marriage. We should be willing to remove anything and everything that would draw you away from covenant fidelity to your spouse. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless from the oldest to the youngest, the married to the unmarried. And as we close, though, there remains an even deeper reality to marriage. It is hinted at here, but we know it's revealed most fully in Christ. Marriage is critical because of the oneness, because of God's intentions, but also because it is a beautiful picture of the mystery of the gospel. Because in Ephesians 5, right after he quotes Genesis chapter 2, Paul says in verse 32, this mystery, the two becoming one flesh, is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage proclaims the gospel. It proclaims how Jesus has united us to himself, his bride, the church, as one flesh. And in covenant faithfulness to her, he has redeemed her and sanctified her and continues to purify her by his blood. He's entered into covenant with her for all eternity. We, the church, are the bride of Christ, and he is our faithful groom. We are faithful to him as we are faithful in all of our relationships, including our marriages. And please know, he abundantly offers grace and mercy when we fail, and we will fail. But he will also renew us in our call to covenant faithfulness making us once again eager to guard ourselves and to not be faithless. The covenant of marriage demands faithfulness because the covenant of marriage reflects God and his covenant with us. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you have indeed entered into a covenant with us. That Jesus Christ, you are the faithful husband. You are the groom to us, your bride. God, may we first and foremost be faithful to you, understanding that when we fail in faithfulness to you, we fail everywhere else. And then, God, out of that faithfulness, may we esteem marriage, whether we are or aren't, whether we will or won't be. May we be faithful in all our relationships. May those of us who are married be faithful to our spouses in word, thought, and deed. And may it all be to the glory of your name we ask. In Christ's name, amen.